Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com podcast. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 88th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is how to be a glass-shattering organization. I'm joined by Colleen Emmerman. She is the co-author, along with Boris Groisberg, of Glass Half Broken, Shattering the Barriers That Still Hold Women Back at Work. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Colleen is the director of the Harvard Business School Gender Initiative. She's also a researcher with Life and Leadership after HBS. Welcome to the show, Colleen. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. Well, we'll have a lot to cover, but we'll start with what's a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, Well, the subtitle of the book has a word in it that's very important, actually. So the subtitle is um, uh, Shattering the Barriers That Still Hold Women Back at Work. And still is kind of the operative word there Um, because we wrote the book because a lot of progress has been made, you know, toward greater gender equality and gender equity in the workplace. But we obviously are not at parity in leadership and not at sort of equity and all kinds of other outcomes in the workplace. Um, So the book is organized into basically two parts. And the first part is really about why that is, you know, why is gender inequality so persistent? And we really take the lens of looking at someone's career and what happens kind of at early, middle and late career to um, perpetuate the, the gaps that we see, right? And to make it harder for women to advance and grow. Um, So we kind of spend some time helping readers hopefully understand why after all the progress that we've seen and and all the efforts that we've seen, we're not farther along. And then we do turn um, 
the rest of the book to what to do about it, right? So we don't want to just, you know, kind of hit you over the head with the problems. We want to say, well, what can we do? And we have basically a three-part solutions framework, you could say. Um, and it's really about bringing together um, structural changes, um, inclusive management, which is, you know, at the end of the day about creating culture. And then the final piece, which cuts across both, but we think is important to isolate and elevate is about fully mobilizing and engaging men um, as sort of allies and advocates and players in the fight for gender equality. Okay. No, I, I see certainly that last part is also very instrumental. I'm struck in your book, you at one point cite a Gallup poll where 42% of U.S. men believe that equality has actually been achieved in the workplace, which is double the proportion of women who agree. That's just, it's so obvious to me from my experience in the workplace that we are not at equality. Um, I don't know where these 42% of the men are and what they notice and fail to notice, but wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's lots of interesting data like that out there, right? Um, And I think what often happens is not so much that, that men, you know, think that, you know, we've achieved, achieved perfection or achieved parity, but when they're asked, you know, kind of, you know, is there a quality in your workplace? And they're thinking about kind of just what happens day to day and what they see. Uh, okay, um, sure. They're not, you know, they're not necessarily seeing things that are really overt, right? We have addressed, and not that it still doesn't happen, but we've addressed a lot of really explicit discrimination that used to happen, right? So they may be thinking, well, I'm not seeing, you know, really um, explicit things. You know, nobody's telling my female colleague, you know, hey, I'm not going to pay you X amount or I'm not going to offer you this promotion simply because you're a woman. And so it's like, OK, well, we've, we've we've done something about that. But what they're not sort of tuned into, um, and this is why it's important to really engage men, is they're just not necessarily seeing the more subtle ways that women are experiencing a different workplace. Right. So it may not be so visible to them. But what generally tends to happen, particularly in the kinds of workplaces that we study at HBS, you know, which are, you know, what we often call knowledge work or used to call white collar work. Um, those are environments where uh, men and women can be, you know, at the same level. Level, even sometimes on the same team, certainly in the same department, um, and actually be experiencing different things in more subtle ways, right? And we can, you know, kind of get into some details, but men just don't necessarily see that unfolding. So it's a little bit harder for them to, to kind of understand, well, what, you know, what is the nature of, you know, lack of gender equality? And that's what makes it hard, we think, for them to figure out what their role is and how to contribute, even if they, you know, endorse the idea of, yes, you know, would love to see more women in leadership and make sure that, you know, my daughters and um, sisters um, and, and friends have equal opportunity. But, th- you know, that's part of why we, we did do a lot in the book to describe how gender barriers really operate today to help people kind of be able to identify it and see it and then figure out how can I step in uh, and, you know, and help break those down. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. So in other words, it's gone from being, uh, at least in many cases, you know, less overt, uh, but there's all sorts of subterranean things going on that uh, Mm -hmm. they may not choose to see, may not actually see or observe Mm -hmm. in some fashion. So I, I've always loved the Dick Cavett line where he's, he jokes, read any good book covers lately. I have done the entire book. I have read it. But on the book cover, Flap, there are a couple of really striking things that I think are, are worth pursuing here. One is right away you, you telegraph the fact that in the highest paying jobs, that's where the greatest gender imbalance is. In other words, that when you get to the executive suite, that's where women remain the most unrepresented in terms of, or underrepresented in terms of power and status. Uh, I do want to move to the how-tos. So maybe as we go to each of these points and these startling statistics and so forth, uh, I want to turn it over to you to say, 
Okay, that is <laughs> that is the situation, and, and here's a way forward with it. So let's start with the corner offices and the executive suite and that underrepresentation. Uh, what do you think is a, a way or two that this can can be addressed? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways to to tackle that question, right? And so you can think about for the women who are at senior levels today, and that's you know part of what we write about and unpack. What are they experiencing, right? And so um, it's not the case that somebody who has you know overcome a lot of barriers that women um, experience earlier in in their career and at mid career, um, those that have overcome those, it's not like they get to that senior level and maybe are trying to break through to that final promotion, you know, to the C suite or to the senior vice president level, managing partner, um, it, they're not, you know, sort of on equal playing field by virtue of having gotten that far, right? So in fact, um, because they are in such a minority at those very high levels of the hierarchy, oftentimes they face kind of even more scrutiny and even more kind of questions about, you know, do you know your fit, right? We, we talked to a lot of them who said, actually, it's at this point in my career when I feel like there's more skepticism, um, you know, because I am the only woman in the room, right, which was not the case earlier in my career. And so we're, there's kind of tackling it, that, it at that level and addressing some sure. of that, um, you know, in, in these kind of higher echelons, you know, thinking about corporate boards, right, there's a lot of conversation now about diversity on corporate boards, which is really important. And so making sure that people making decisions about those very high levels of leadership are educated and having the conversation about, for instance, you know, why is it that we're framing the profile for, you know, a certain role or, uh, you know, a, you know, a certain level in this very narrow way that tends to disadvantage women, right? It's having those conversations to say, wait a second, maybe we need to question some of our assumptions about the profile for this role or for this board seat. So there's that piece of it. But okay. absolutely, there's a lot that we need to do much earlier and kind of lower down in the hierarchy, so to speak, so that we have a more robust pipeline so that then when you get to that point, right, when women get to levels of leadership um, that are much higher and more rarefied, they're not the only ones, right? So it's you've really got to kind of attack it all the way through the pipeline to start to see some meaningful shifting. Okay, that would have been my second point from the from the book flap was talking about the leadership pipeline. And yeah, the, the dilemmas faced there. But I, I'm going to follow up on the thing that you just mentioned about the boards, because later as I got into the book, I mean, the statistics are pretty stunning there as well. I mean, we're talking, I think at one point you, you write that only 22% of the boards are held by women in a major index and just 4.6% of them held by women of color. Yeah. Um, this is something that shareholders are still comfortable with? They really have very little power when it comes to the annual shareholder meetings. I mean, why can't we get to a better place? I mean, that's that's a bold, naive question. I'm not asking it naively. I'm just more outraged, I guess, than anything else, but at the same time stunned that we don't have uh, more fairness. Yeah. I mean, and this is something that definitely has received more attention in the past couple of years. And we've seen, you know, things like the mandates in, um, in California, California um, uh, to increase diversity, uh, both gender and racial diversity on boards. Um, we have the NASDAQ rule, uh, you know, that that has, you know, uh, that's come up recently. Uh, and those kinds of things are changing the conversation and elevating the conversation, whatever you think of kind of um, the v- virtue or value of targets versus quotas, you know, mandates versus incentives, you know, the conversation um, certainly has has been elevated. Um, 
and I think also what's been really good recently is we are having um, a conversation that's not just about gender, which has really for a long time been the main sort of focus of the discourse about um, diversity on boards. Diversity has really meant gender. And so what that's meant is that sadly, a lot of the, the limited progress that we have made has really accrued to white women, you know, so that statistic you mentioned, if you kind of break apart, okay, X, you know, number of uh, board seats are held by women. But whenever you break that apart by race, you know, women of color are always such a tiny percentage. And so I'm glad that, you know, we are acknowledging that and talking about it. As to your question of why we're in this place, right, there are a lot of reasons. Um, and a lot of the, the reason is that, you know, the majority of board seats, um, even on public companies and certainly privately held companies, are filled through personal networks, right? So there are search yeah. firms and headhunting firms out there, but they fill up a minority um, of board seats, right? So the vast majority of board seats are filled through these personal networks, which just tend to be very homogenous, right, for all of the reasons that we know. Um, and so... You know, again, it kind of goes back to your question about how do we right, change what we're seeing in leadership. Um, it's really the responsibility of those who are in these positions of you know, leadership and power now to say, OK, how can I step back and look at, for instance, my network and identify uh, you know, wh where where the lack is, right? Huh, are all my network, you know, is everyone in my network someone who looks just like me, right? Who has, you know, a similar educational background as I do, right? Similar, um, you know, uh, social background, you know, same race and gender, all these, these kinds of factors. Um, we think it's really important for people who are making these decisions to kind of take up the responsibility of diversifying their networks, uh, which is, you know, part of what we talk about in the book is sort of, okay, Again, we think a lot of people really want to be part of the solution, but aren't necessarily certain about what steps to take. And so that's, you know, um, certainly a big one um, that anyone can take is thinking about how can I make sure that I'm not sort of repro just reproducing myself, right? When I'm yes. thinking about bringing some, whether it's onto a board or, you know, in any context, right? Hiring, et cetera. Well, earlier in my career, I was the director of executive communication for a Fortune 200 company in New Jersey. And Therefore, I was privy a little bit to some of those board of directors meetings, and they typically tended to be CEOs uh, at other companies, uh, often in New Jersey, not always. Uh, but it was a very close-knit <laughs> and very diversified group. And I remember even at the time, and still to this day, I'm going to myself, you know, all the data shows that uh, customer expectations is one of the great disruptors that executives feel they're facing. Why wouldn't you step beyond your, and I'm not making this accusation to you, it's a rhetorical <laughs> question, I suppose. Why wouldn't you move beyond your personal network to say, we need thought leaders on this board. If we're going to really steer ourselves forward, shouldn't I be looking for maybe uh, a consumer advocate or someone who's an expert on mm -hmm. customer segmentation and expectations? Yeah. And, and I say that in part because lo and behold, who, who makes most of the purchases? Statistics I see that is households that are driven about eighty percent by by the women in the household, presuming there there is one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the uh, women we interviewed for this book, and we talked to her specifically about boards. This is really um, incredible woman named Michelle Hooper. Um, she uh, started serving on her first board as the only black woman on that board. I think in her late thirties, and has had a really phenomenal career. But she said, you know, look, this is a kind of a drum I've been beating for a long time, is to say you know, look, like our customer, you know, any, all the organizations that she works with, you know, or has served, um, served on their boards, like customers are becoming more, you know, ever more diverse, right? People's expectations um, for representation and for elevating conversations, you know, about 
stakeholder concerns are only increasing, right? If we are going to be effective, however you slice it, we really need to think about making sure that we don't have this kind of homogenous group thing, right? Even just from a strategic perspective, if we all come from, you know, a similar background, have had similar jobs, we all think the same. And that's not ultimately helping us kind of steward this organization uh, effectively. Yeah, no, I mean, I've seen plenty of statistics suggesting that innovation, uh, the pace of innovation is best at those companies that have real diversity at the senior levels. Um, do you, by the way, just out of curiosity, do you know of any places where they try to balance a, you know, very homogenous, frankly, board of directors with like a consumer advisory board or a really empowered uh, employee advisory board? It just seems to me that the, speaking of your word, perspective, there, there are just, there's a real chronic lack of perspectives brought, brought to those senior level conversations. It's a good question. I don't, I don't know offhand, you know, sort of any example to, to go to, but I do think, you know, a lot of companies are certainly making an effort to say, well, boards, right, are very small, right? These are small groups of people, like 10 to yes. 12 people, right? And the turnover is uh, usually not frequent, right? So as important as it is to have that conversation. Yeah, gla- um, glacial would be the term that yeah, comes to mind. Exactly. And that's a whole, <laughs> you know, in the governance discourse, right, a whole other conversation about, you know, uh, terms and retirement and, you know, age caps and all of that. You know, that's a whole separate it's, it's kind of like the Supreme Court. You get on there and you're, you're right. there just about forever. Right. So, um, you know, so knowing that as important as, you know, that conversation is, right, because that's such an important kind of locus of leadership, I think a lot of organizations do recognize, you know, okay, we want to, you know, have movement there, but there's so much else we can do, right, um, in terms of thinking about diversity just in our hiring and in our organizational leadership, right, and in doing things like you're suggesting, you know, tapping into um, being better connected to different kinds of, of stakeholders, including customers. So I think a lot of forward-thinking organizations, right, are really you know, what I would say is thinking about how to operate all the levers at once, right? How to make sure, you know, we're identifying all the different points of intervention and figuring out how to kind of put um, resources and energy into those multiple points of, of intervention. Because, you know, look, at the end of the day, you know, problems of inequality, you know, not just gender, but really all kinds of inequality in you know, business and in the workplace are what social scientists would call overdetermined, right? So there's not just one factor driving that inequality. So you can't, you know, if you just focus on one thing and you fix one thing, you know, well, that's great, but you're not going to then see, you know, see the outcome that you want in terms of greater equality, right? You, you may see some progress, but you really need to be thinking about how can we, again, identify all the different intervention points and figure out how we can effectively move on them in a strategic way. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. 
Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Okay. Um, because we, we uh, titled this episode How To, I do want to get to How To's most definitely before we run out of time. You, you have a wealth of them, and I, and I think they're great. Uh, you know, I think one thing you bring up, for instance, I'll just give a few citations and then get to my question. Uh, for instance, we don't tolerate rainmakers. If they are really violating what we think should be the norms just because you bring in revenue, should not be a free pass. Uh, you talk about declining events where, uh, you know, it's a conference where there isn't gender diversity among the speakers. Uh, you're talking about male leaders who seemingly the only emotion they can show is anger and everything else is pretty much verboten, including appreciation to their subordinates. In this long list and a very valid good list of all these things, do you have maybe two or three of these that you've really gravitated to? Um, they're just more feasible in your heart of heart. You've you've seen them make the biggest difference. You just cotton to them in some way. Uh, just take us through a couple of three of these, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I want to acknowledge so many of these, um, you know, strategies, you know, um, tactics, uh, interventions, things to do come from uh, people that we've, we've, you know, spoken to people that we've interviewed for the book, you know, like uh, often, you know, typically also then sort of validated in the research evidence, right? Saying, okay, this seems to be effective. But, you know, for instance, you know, just what you said about, you know, not um, even if people kind of are are rainmakers, if they are engaging in, you know, behavior like sexual harassment or bullying, right? Not giving them a free pass, you know, that there's a lot of research on this, but we we also have great stories, you know, for instance, um, about uh, Jack Rivkin, who ran an equity research department on Wall Street in the 90s and had a no jerk policy, right? And so, and specifically often would call people out in regards to things like, um, you know, gender bias, right? To say, you know, look, that's great, you know, however, you know, however great your stock picks are, like, this is not the the environment that I want to cultivate because he saw, right, a bigger and a longer term game around um, cultivating talent and cultivating um, a, a department where everyone could thrive. And ultimately, you know, that did lead the department to be more successful. So I just want to acknowledge how much of that comes sure. from, you know, really, um, you know, pretty incredible stories of people kind of stepping up and and uh, and making a difference in all kinds of ways. Uh, in terms of, you know, some of my favorite tips and favorite um, how to's, um, you know, one of them um, that I do like to talk about, which we heard about a lot um, from the women we interviewed um, has to do with, um, and this is relevant, I think, particularly for men, but it's actually not just for men, um, has to do with thinking about um, how you offer kind of opportunities, right, which could be to apply for a promotion or really important assignment in a way that's equitable. So one thing we heard about a lot from the women we interviewed who had achieved very senior um, levels of leadership is times earlier in their career where a supervisor did not offer them, did not, you know, tell them about or, you know, give them the chance to kind of raise their hand for an opportunity that would be um, you know, advantageous to their career. You know, one was a woman who um, heard after the fact about a job she could have applied for, um, a promotion that would have taken her um, from uh, living in Rio de Janeiro to Sao Paulo. And she asked her boss and he said, well, you just are newly married. I didn't think you'd you know, want to entertain the idea of living apart from your husband. So it didn't occur to me to offer this to you. 
Um, and we heard versions of that story from probably dozens of women, right? And the, and what they all said was, you know, I appreciated, you know, the concern for my manager, but at the end of the day, not, you know, keeping me in the loop and not offering me the opportunity is taking the control out of my hands, right? To make that decision about how to manage yeah. my career. And like in this example, she said, look, you know, I, I told my boss, thank you, but you know, we could commute. It's a short flight. I could come back on weekends. He might move there with me. You know, that's, I, that's for me to manage. Um, and of course, the other important thing they said was, you know, this, you know, as in her case, this was really an opportunity that, you know, I, I needed to advance my career. Like this was exactly the kind of thing that um, I wanted to do to get to that next step. Happy ending for her. Um, her her, her name is Ana Paula um, Pessoa. She, a year later, was able to, uh, you know, apply for a similar position, you know, made the move and went on to have an incredible career um, at that same company. Um, but anyway, that is something we heard about a lot. So I would just say, you know, it's a mindset shift for managers to say, don't try to, quote unquote, protect women by not offering them opportunities. It may be something that they don't want to take up at this point in time, right? Maybe they do have a lot of caregiving responsibilities and they say, you know, I'm going to, you know, that's not right for me now, but I'd like to pursue that next year, right? But ultimately, it's making sure that you're not taking those kinds of opportunities and decisions yeah. out of their hands. So yeah, that's don't don't pre- don't presume in a way that takes away the opportunity. Yep, exactly. So that that's a big one. Uh, that that I like I said, we just heard about that from so so many women that I think is again, and it's a kind of a simple thing. It's a mindset shift. Um, so that's that's one. Um, I think you know, in terms of the making structural changes, right? We have a whole chapter where we unpack, you know, the all of the processes that go into managing an employee, right? All the way back from just advertising your job and getting qualified people into the candidate pool, you know, all the way through to interviewing, hiring, integrating them, evaluating them. So we unpack kind of the research on how bias, um, you know, seeps into those processes and then what to do to actually try to take the bias out of the way the process is run just structurally. Um, but kind of a, a, a headline with a lot of those is more transparency tends to be helpful. So the more transparency that you can bring to um, different kinds of management processes, you know, that is likely going to create a more even playing field. So for instance, it's very clear from the research on negotiation that when you make clear the parameters of a negotiation, kind of what's up for negotiation, what's on the table, you know, when you're talking about a hire or a promotion, you see gender differences and outcomes go away, right? Um, Things like, um, you know, making the process around um, putting yourself forward for a promotion, right? A lot of companies have started to use these self-nominating processes, but then sometimes, you know, kind of the intricacies of that are not very transparent, right? So um, people are kind of are relying on managers or sometimes, you know, relying on just their personal propensity, right, to seek out the information, to understand what goes into that self-nominating process and whether they're qualified, you know, to raise their hand and when it's appropriate. Um, And that leads to gender disparities, right, for all kinds of reasons. So the more kind of transparency and information you can bring to say to everyone, okay, here's how this works, you know, here's what um, you should do, here are the... Uh, kind of the the thresholds that mean that you are, you know, uh, qualified to raise your hand for this next step, right? The more that you can bring that kind of structure and transparency to your processes, generally speaking, that's going to help you get to more equity. And and speaking of that, so, I mean, you mentioned elsewhere in the book, for instance, that women, especially as they move up, may have uh, less opportunity for for mentors or sponsors. Mm -hmm. If they don't really feel like they have that and they can navigate those intricacies, for self-promotion or, or, you know, applying, positioning oneself to advance one's career. 
Are there companies that you found that recognize this this problem with lack of mentors and advisors and actually just like have, I guess I'll almost call like a pool or a panel where these, these can be drawn on, even though you don't maybe have the personal organic connection, but they're just identified as a resource that might be particularly uh, set up to, to aid women or minority uh, candidates trying to, you know, forward their careers? Yeah. I mean, I think companies are doing a lot in this area of making sure that people have access to, you know, mentors, to sponsors, to information. Um, because of course, again, in a lot of the types of organizations that we study, your your progress um, and your advancement is really dependent on relationships, right? That's how you learn about the business. That's how you kind of figure out some of the unspoken rules or you kind of get insight and information about, you know, certain clients or certain partners or, you know, whatever the nature of the business is, right? Relationships are really, really critical. And I think companies know that. Um, so, you know, so a lot of them have tried to, for instance, institute mentorship programs or even sponsorship programs. Um, you know, the kind of thing you're describing, I think, often happens through um, employee-led affinity groups, right? That we uh, all, okay, sure. You know, there's a need to make this information more, more kind of, um, you know, more accessible to people. So they might think about bringing in leaders, right, from different parts of the business to, you know, help educate, right? For instance, um, women in the company um, about, you know, uh, about, uh, you know, what are the different kinds of ways that they can advance their career, right? And sort of make sure that everyone is getting access to the right um, information and the information they need to advance. So I think companies are doing a lot. It varies in terms of how successful it is, right? Um, sure. A lot of that goes down to um, kind of the commitment of the people who have the information, right, to really make sure that they're being thoughtful and mindful about the relationships that they're forming. Um, and so, again, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of boards, but it's true generally, right? It's about how do I make sure that I am not um, – you know, gravitating toward building connections with um, kind of giving insight to and, you know, ultimately sort of developing and mentoring people who are just like me, right? How can I make sure I'm instead being thoughtful about the people around me and, you know, who, um, you know, is, you know, sort of who, what their aspirations are, what their, um, you know, qualities are and their competencies, you know, what their potential is, you know, thinking about that in a more reflective way and figuring out how can I, you know, give an opportunity, you know, to somebody who doesn't look like me, right, that maybe I'm, you know, would assume is not interested in this or isn't the right fit for this, because there aren't a lot of people who look like them in this role, but say, well, maybe that is exactly the person I should invite to this meeting, or ask to staff this project, you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. Um, before we run out of time, just one more thing I wanted to get to. You you mentioned it's still very much out there, the, the quote-unquote double bind. In other words, that a woman, more so than a guy, often needs to be not just competent, but is trying to navigate being seen as likable yeah. uh, and respected as opposed to uh, being you know aggressive in the way that a man might be aggressive and yet not tagged with that in a negative sense. Um, probably from some of the women you've interviewed for the book and other case stories, uh, examples, guidelines, anything you might suggest on how to navigate that that double bind? Yeah, this is a tough one, right? Because it's really about a conflict in the expectations that we have for women versus the expectations yes. that we have for leaders, right? And so it does put, I mean, it's a double bind because it's actually impossible to get out of, right? If you kind of err on one side, well, then you're not going to be very well liked. If you err on the other side, people are probably not going to think you're that great at your job. So it's kind of an impossible tightrope to walk. Um, What I would say, based on both 
um, you know, uh, research and, and also conversations that we've had with women kind of in our own research for the book is a couple things that I think contribute to helping women sort of navigate this tightrope. One is really staying anchored in your purpose and why you're doing uh, what you're doing, uh, because it is actually very distracting to be focused so much on image management and how other people perceive you. It's very natural to want to focus on that, but as you know, because you're getting these conflicting signals and you realize that this is, um, you know, affecting your success, but it actually is a kind of a big cognitive load on women, right. To be constantly thinking about how to manage these perceptions. So trying as much as you can to really stay anchored more in your own purpose and why you're there and why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and the other thing that a lot of women that we spoke to who, you know, went on, who, who have been very successful talked about is just, you know, being clear and clearly communicating about your goals, um, making sure that you're having those conversations about, you know, roles that you'd like to take on in a very concrete, specific ways, you know, with a manager, with superiors, you know, not just I want to grow with the company, but, you know, look, I'd like to be leading this line of business in five years. Um, and so really, again, that's about being um, clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve, right? And staying anchored in that um, as hard as it is, you know, to kind of manage that double bind, that seems to help women kind of navigate through that tightrope. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense to me in part because I, I happen to be a pretty avid tennis player. And if I was uh, playing self-consciously, uh, that's not as good as staying with the strategy and knowing the goals and just yeah. uh, buckling down. The more I'm watching myself play tennis, uh, doesn't tend to go well, uh, which is why doubles gets interesting as you have a teammate to, you know, try to sync up with. Um, so I want to thank you so much, Colleen, uh, for being my guest. This has been episode number 88, the topic, how to be a glass shattering organization. Colleen is along with Boris Groisberg, the co-author of Glass Half Broken, shattering the barriers that still, and that's the key word, still hold women back at work. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. On the New Books Network, type in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight and guests from the past year and a half will pop up there. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, I took one from Charlotte Widdens, who said, whatever women must do, they must do twice as well as men to be thought half as good. Luckily, this is not difficult. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.